I'm Scott Greer, and this is an HMP Governance Lab podcast on the intersection of money and representation with a special focus on our legislatures. Now, everybody's got an opinion of how money and politics interact, and it's usually pretty facile. At most, you get a joke like Democrats are for rent, but Republicans stay bought or what have you. And there's a lot of truth to it. Money does buy a lot of political power in the United States and everywhere else. But there's variations in the way that it does that influence what kinds of public policies money can and can't buy. And there's also ways that the problem can be made greater or less. And that's part of what we're going to be exploring today. Talking about the impact of money in politics first, then talking about some of the effects it has on who goes into politics and what they do, and then ending with a brief recap of some of the ways that the problem of an imbalance in politics towards people with money might be addressed. What does this quest for money do to political life? Now, the thing about the American political system is that compared to a lot of, for example, European systems, you can buy an awful lot of political speech. Going all the way back to a Supreme Court decision in 1976, Buckley versus Vallejo, which determined that money is speech and which reached its fruition in the infamous or famous Citizens United Supreme Court case in which a Republican Supreme Court voted that money is speech and corporations are people with a right to free speech. What this means is that you can pour an ungodly amount of money into an American campaign without coordinating with the campaign, without donating to the campaign, without necessarily even saying who you are, and have a lot of influence. And you can build national campaign structures around that so that if, for example, you're an inspired young Republican, you might not choose to take the traditional path of working in campaigns or as a legislative staffer. You might say you'd rather build your career within Americans for Prosperity or one of the other networks of, that are built around donor money. Now, one effect that this has is that it disempowers political parties still more. Political parties don't have a lot of power over candidate selection. I will refer to you to the entire career of Donald Trump in the Republican Party for an example of how party elites in the United States don't have that much clout. And instead, it empowers people who are either what we call the roving billionaires, people with a lot of money, like the Koch brothers or George Soros, or individual candidates who have a lot of what we call earned media, meaning they know how to get media attention of which Donald Trump is a major example once again. It also means that it's very easy to think like a politician when you bear in mind that issue polling isn't all that matters. So take an example, $15 minimum wage. This is really popular. It polls well. It even polls well with Republican voters. So why don't politicians vote for it? Because the threat is not that someone will come at them saying, your support for a $15 minimum wage is a problem because that's not a winning election campaign and we know it. What worries politicians is that someone's going to come at them with something completely unrelated, that they support some terrible thing, that they said some terrible thing. In other words, politicians are worried about poking the hornet's nest of people who have a lot of money, not because any individual policy opposed by rich people is unpopular. Many of the policies that rich people oppose are quite popular, 
But because if you're dealing with rich people, money is fungible and they can buy a campaign and a field network that can go up against you on whatever issue is most disadvantageous to you. So the first effect is that you have a political system in the United States that has been quite intentionally wired to benefit billionaires. You could say that part of the problems we're having with foreign campaign interference is that once you set up a political system for billionaires, you run the risk that you'll get the wrong billionaires. It creates a threat so that politicians don't take votes on even popular subjects because of the fear that somebody with, quote, more money than God, unquote, as they say, is going to come after you as a result of your vote. It also shapes what you do all day. There's a pretty rigid schedule for an elected representative, senator, whatever, especially in Washington, but also increasingly in state legislatures, in which you have to spend a lot of your day dialing for cash. If you've seen The Wire, there's a very good representation of what it takes to train a politician to learn to just call and ask for money and how unpleasant it is. Now ask yourself, would you like to do that all day? Would you like to basically be a telemarketer for yourself if you also had the range of other skills that make you a successful politician? It's a selection device. And it also means that politicians, almost by definition in the United States, have to spend a lot of time talking to rich people because rich people are the people who can finance their campaign. And then it bleeds over into what lobbyists do because a lot of the time, the relationship is not so much lobbyists trying to raise money for politicians they support, although there's plenty of that. They also get calls from politicians saying that they would like you to have a fundraising. So dear association of whatevers, please could you hold an event for my member? In other words, dear association of whatevers, I've noticed you have a lot of money and I'd like to dip my hat in it. This produces some weird effects. We talked about the surprise billing uh, issue where part of what was going on was precisely that the chair of a powerful House committee had discovered a way to raise lots of money from the healthcare sector. But you also see in other things. When somebody announces they're going to do a major tax reform bill or a major reform to payment structures or a major trade bill, a lot of the time what they're doing is not so much trying to make policy as forcing every relevant interest on these big issues to come in, make a donation, and work with them and befriend them. That's another bad incentive. Finally, all of this accumulates to a very skewed political agenda. If you just ask people what ought to be on the political agenda, which is a question that produces lots of interesting variation, one systematic thing is it doesn't look a lot like what's actually being talked about. And part of it is that if everybody agrees that there's benefits to discussing things that interest people with political money, and people are afraid of raising issues that would incur a backlash from people with political money, then the agenda is going to be made up of things that disproportionately some large number of people with money are happy with. This means, for example, that we'll spend a lot of time talking about what are loosely called social issues. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about budgetary issues. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about things like occupational health and safety, or even racial disparities in healthcare access, or environmental injustice. So that's all pretty glum, right? Because essentially, if you build a system in which, as they say, the mother's milk of politics is money, then you would expect the people in it to have to spend a lot of time talking to people with money, differentially anticipating and responding to the thoughts of people with money, and avoiding raising issues where they're going to get into a fight with somebody who's got a lot of money. 
And in the background, of course, is the basic thing that if you care about your constituency and your own reelection, then you also care about jobs. And so anybody who's an employer or a likely employer in your district is also going to have a lot of influence, even if they don't say a word. And their opinions will matter to you, even if you think they're objectively wrong about what is good or bad for the economy. Now, what are the second point? What are the effects that this fairly appalling lifestyle has on our political elites? These are some of the readings. The first one is that it joins a lot of other things in creating a class bias as to who gets represented. Basically, a solid majority of the American population has less than college education, and they are extremely poorly represented in politics. You might say that it's good that people with master's degrees in sophisticated topics who understand complexity are represented. You might also say that their overrepresentation is bad, and what we need is politicians who come from all different walks of life, serviced by staffers and civil servants who are trained to handle the technical issues. I realize this might cut a bit close to home if you happen to be studying for a professional master's degree in an elite university, but there does seem to be an effect. On one hand, you see it in Carnes where he points out that controlling for party, and you always need to control for party in 21st century America, people of a working class background are more likely to support, raise, and vote for issues that benefit people of a working class background. And Amazingly enough, people from a different class background tend to be less interested in issues, for example, such as community colleges, right? For every article about Oberlin or Harvard or the University of Michigan, there's tens of thousands of students in community colleges getting really important life-changing education about which we hear nothing in most elite discourse. In many ways, community colleges are more important to shaping the American economy than elite schools like ours. In many ways, small privates are crucial. The private sector is crucial, although in higher education, quite dangerous. And the amount of discussion that they get is nil, because by and large, people in politics have master's degrees from universities of the status of Michigan. Now, this, by the way, fits in with a broader pattern, and it's a really strange inversion we're seeing in country after country, in which the center-left party, for here the Democrats, increasingly becomes the party of highly educated people, a sort of alliance of liberals of choice, highly educated folks who believe in individual freedom, as they define it, and liberals of necessity, such as, for example, immigrants who don't feel comfortable in the hands of the right-wing party. This means that center-left parties are increasingly becoming well-educated, both their representatives and their voters, very well-educated. At the same time, in this weird inversion, parties to the right, in the United States, the Republicans, are often seeing a declining level of average education among their voters. Their voters aren't getting less educated. They're acquiring more voters who have lower educational standing. And what seems to be going on is simply that they're picking up an increasingly large number of, in the United States case, working class white voters who have less than a college education and justifiably feel that their interests are not being represented by anybody. And this was a secular trend in the United States before Donald Trump, even though he sort of exemplified it. The weird year was not 2016, it was actually 2008, when a surprisingly large number, an unusually large number of white people without college education voted for the Democratic candidate, Obama. Now, the effects of this across the world are interesting in terms of both what kinds of policies happen and also what are the fates of center-left parties. And there's a bunch of countries in which it would appear that becoming the party 
of highly educated people, not rich people necessarily, but highly educated people, does not work to the benefit of the center-left party. That's why they're in so much trouble in a range of countries such as France, Germany, and the United Kingdom. Now, a second thing, and this is the who wants to run reading, is that in the general gridlock and search for money, and even the specific ways in which the filibuster means that legislation is very hard to do, who's going to run for politics and who's going to be selected into politics? There's still a lot of mechanisms at work that mean that people go into politics because they want to do good and make policy and find policy interesting and good policy satisfying from all sorts of ideological and perspectives. But if increasingly the road to political salience and popularity is not working down in the trenches making a lot of policies, but for example, being Jim Jordan, who is a very powerful House Republican and uh, never passed a piece of legislation in his life, and he's doing fine. So there's a little kerfuffle when Madison Cawthorn, a newly elected Republican from North Carolina in the House, who memorably his first tweet after winning was a kind of classic, I'm gonna drink liberal tears, cry liberals is what he said. He was completely open that he's not hiring any staff for policy work. He's hiring nothing but media, communications, and constituent service staff. He's actually responding quite intelligently to some really perverse incentives we've got in American politics, which is that if profile and earned media, remember Donald Trump was the king of earned media, but Cawthorn's doing very well, and relationships with donors and relationships with the base and general Fox News profile are the things that matter, then why would you make policy? Why would you engage in the frustrating game of actually trying to accomplish something when, by and large, the positions you take and the loudness and forcefulness with which you take them are the things that are going to attract your voters in a nationalized political system and your donors? This is not just one party. It's asymmetric. There seems to be more of it among the Republicans for a variety of reasons, principally that the Republicans are a party of ideological conservatism, whatever that happens to mean, um, I don't want to get into that debate. And Democrats are more clearly a coalition of all sorts of different interests that don't necessarily have that much in common, save for their coalition in the Democratic Party. So Democrats are still often obliged, as well as inclined, to put more effort into public policy. But on both sides, we see an increasing percentage of members who basically just taunt and yell at the other side. And you would predict that, right? Because if politics is substantially a theater of words, egged on by social media, cable news, the base, donors, then you can imagine that what you'd start to get would be really flamboyant party soldiers instead of people who wanted to make public policy. And that's the secular trend, even if it's asymmetric so that Democrats are cottoning onto it more slowly. So third point, this is all really grim. What are some of the solutions? The obvious one is campaign finance. If you want to be really strong, you go back and you legislate. You probably wouldn't need to amend the Constitution to undermine Buckley versus Faleo and say that political expenditure is not free speech. Thus, for example, we would be able to do something that all sorts of political systems have done to good effect, which is simply ban the purchase of TV advertising, because TV advertising is the gigantic money sink. Secondly, there's a lot of democratic changes that you could make that would attenuate the impact of money and class and other biases in politics. 
And a lot of it is simply the sorts of things that are front and center in the democratic reform agenda right now, such as small d democratic reform agenda, although it looks like it's also going to be big D reform agenda, such as making it easier to vote, automatic voter registration, a holiday on election day, um, being able to open and count absentee ballots before the election happened, all mail postal voting like they have in Utah and Oregon, all sorts of things like that would, by increasing the size of the electorate, start to democratize access to American politics. So on one hand, campaign finance regulation in the United States, which doesn't work particularly well because we're working around some Supreme Court decisions that are really quite partisan in favor of money, and at the same time, broadening the opportunities for democratic engagement. I'll also throw in something if you're completely cynical about the chances for democratic reform in the United States, which is simply that it's not clear that additional money actually matters that much. There's been a long strain of political science research finding that essentially once you spend enough, once you're within 20 or 30 percent of the expenditures of the other candidate, it doesn't really seem to matter how much more you spend. And we certainly saw cases of that in the 2020 election when the tidal wave of money from Democrats that went into a number of closely fought races like North Carolina and didn't seem to move the needle. And the tidal wave of money that hit the state of Kentucky in an essentially hopeless race by Amy McGrath, McGrath against Mitch McConnell, not only did McGrath not win, which was not to be expected, but also it was amazing how little changed in the polls over the course of deluging Kentucky local TV stations with dough. So it appears that actually people are, for a variety of reasons, responding less to the kinds of media that soak up a lot of money, right? They're responding less to TV ads, partly because people who watch broadcast television ads are rarer and rarer, because partisanship means that you're less and less likely to listen to the other side's ad, uh, because the nationalization of media and nationalization of political identities means that you're not as interested in the candidate, you're interested in the party ID. So in other words, there's a bunch of reasons to think that we might be seeing the declining effectiveness of money in the United States. And while on one hand, we're finally spending the kinds of sums of money on politics that you wouldn't bat an eye at to spend if you're a drug company rolling out a new product or something, and it's still a fraction of what you'd spend if you were rolling out an over-the-counter product or, heaven help us, you know, a new fast food product from Taco Bell. But it does seem that People are winning based on earned media and door-to-door -door campaigning and other things that don't reward money quite that much. So one of the things to look for when you're thinking about politics is not the reforms that are possible under current rules and current politics, but also the ways in which the current politics might be changing. And if you have a combination of an enormous dependence on money that is making a lot of people working in politics very unhappy, and leading to very strange outcomes from their points of view as well as that of voters. And at the same time, it's getting less and less clear that all this money works, and campaigns are nervous because they're losing control of expenditures in their own races to people from out of state. That all starts to suggest that you might look around at Lisa Murkowski, at Susan Collins, constantly defying national waves of opinion in order to stay elected in their states, admittedly unusual states, and say this might actually be a case for diminishing the role of specific rich people because catering to them is distorting my ability to work for my voters, primary voters or general election voters, and not necessarily doing me any good. 
So not only is there a range of good democratic, small d democratic reforms that you could take to reduce the extent to which money in politics matters, we might actually also be in a moment where, if nothing else, the most expensive forms of political advertising are both slipping out of the control of candidates and campaigns and parties and seeming to be of diminishing relevance because, frankly, how many of you watched broadcast local television lately and paid attention to the ads? You watch those ads and you see pretty clearly who's advertising on them, and I'm willing to bet it's not the demographic that are listening, listening to this podcast. So that was my effort to leave you with a hopeful note. I hope you enjoyed it. This was an HMP Governance Lab podcast, and I'll be back around to talk about interest groups and, once again, our old friend, money. This has been an HMP Governance Lab podcast. If you're interested in learning more about our research, come and find us at www.governancelab.org or follow us on Twitter at HMP GovLab. <laughs>